Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Santosh Rao, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, and Dr. Judith Lacey, a supportive care and integrative oncology physician. With support from the Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk. I'm thrilled to be joined with my new co-host, Dr. Judith Lacey from Australia. So hi, everybody. I'm really delighted today to be here, and I'm going to introduce our first speaker who will be joining us today, Dr. Sheila Garland, who is a registered clinical psychologist and associate professor in the Department of Psychology at MUN. She is cross-appointed to the discipline of oncology and her research interests include sleep and cognitive impairment in breast and prostate cancer patients and how cancer affects young adults. She was also co-investigator on a recent study comparing acupuncture and cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia in cancer patients. So it would be really interesting to see, um, to have her join us today. And we're also joined with Dr. Ashwin Mehta, who's the medical director of the integrative medicine program at Memorial Healthcare in Florida. He's trained in integrative medicine and also board certified in sleep medicine. His research interests focus on improving quality of life, and he's also in, uh, created an integrative cancer survivorship program. And today we'll be addressing sleep and cancer, and we'll try and cover a very um, quite a few topics and we'll see how we go. Looking at the cause and types of sleep dysfunction in cancer patients, the effect of sleep dysfunction on the person, symptom clusters and the relationship of sleep in those in symptom clusters, how we assess sleep disturbances and some, um, and some discussion on how we manage sleep dysfunction, particularly using an integrative oncology as well as um, uh, approach as well as um, how uh, the sleep professionals um, manage sleep dysfunction. Looking forward to it. Well, welcome to another episode of Integrative Oncology Talk. Um, you know, this is going to be a really special episode for a number of reasons. One is that we have more people than we've ever had. You know, we have uh, Ashwin Mehta and Sheila Garland, and we have two guests, but we also have two hosts. And this is the first time that uh, my colleague and friend Judith Lacey uh, from Australia is going to be joining us. Um, so welcome, Judith. Hi. Welcome. Hi, everybody. So Great to be here. why don't you uh, get started, Judith? I will, and I'm really excited to be joining you today. And I think the um, we're talking about a topic which uh, really interests me, as well as all of us here in um, on this podcast today. And um, 
it's it's about sleep disturbances and sleep dysfunction. And for for us personally in our integrative oncology unit, this is the one of the most common reasons people see us when they report on their patient symptom scores, what are your main concerns, and it's sleep disturbance. So I thought we'd start with a question to Sheila about um, really how prevalent or common sleep dysfunction is in cancer patients and when does it occur in the cancer trajectory and um, and if you can define it a little bit. So I'll, I'll hand over to you, Sheila, to start, start us on this conversation. Sure. So, yeah, when we when we talk about sleep, um, we can talk probably most commonly about something um, called insomnia, which would be people who report difficulty falling asleep, people who report difficulty staying asleep, non-restorative sleep. And this um, tends to happen at least three days per week and then also happens um, for at least three months. So that's when it becomes chronic. Um, some of the best research that we've got followed patients from the time of their diagnosis and then all the way up to 18 months later. Uh, so they followed a sample of about a 1,000 people. And what they found was that at diagnosis, um, about 59% of individuals were reporting insomnia symptoms. Um, and then um, I think it was 32% were reporting insomnia. So these people were coming into the cancer diagnosis having extreme um, levels of uh, sleep problems. And then while these prevalence rates did decrease over time, even 18 months later, they were still three times that of the general population. So it's definitely one of the most common um, sleep concerns that people have is insomnia. Um, but we can't also overlook that, you know, sleep is multifactorial. And one of the other sleep problems that um, can come, and it's often more prevalent in certain cancers, is sleep apnea or restless leg syndrome. So at least I would say that, um, you know, from my experience, those are the top three um, sleep problems I see. And is it more common at a particular time? I know that we, we see a lot of patients who say, well, I used to sleep fine, but uh, now that I'm having my breast cancer chemotherapy, I really can't sleep and uh, this isn't getting better. Are there specific times in cancer treatment that we see sleep problems um, occurring and does this continue? Is this something that gets better and how do we uh, map this? Yeah, so I would also say that for um, there's differences by cancer type. So women with breast cancer do report the highest prevalence of sleep problems. Um, and we also know that there's certain treatments um, that are associated with um, higher levels of sleep disturbance. So one of them is chemotherapy. And that is in part because chemotherapy, chemotherapy is often paired with um, administration of steroids. Um, and so you've got some steroid-induced sleep disruption. Oftentimes, people aren't prepared for that. And so they start engaging in sort of maladaptive behaviors or they get anxious about their ability um, or their, their problems with sleep. And then they start doing things and then anxiety builds. And so for a proportion of people who maybe are able to ride with that short-term um, disruption in sleep, it may not turn into a chronic problem. Um, but people who find it more difficult to cope, um, there are about half of individuals that are going to continue on and their sleep problems are going to persist. And for the remaining individuals, um, it, it does resolve with time. So you're saying that um, <clears throat> for some people, they don't have a sleep disorder coming into chemo 
but because of the you know the the adjustments they have to go through getting chemo and being on and off steroids they develop a sleep disorder that persists and absolutely i, I know that another big uh cause of of sleep disturbance is hot flashes for breast cancer patients pain is another big one um so you know let's let's talk about that i mean how ashwin how how do you assess somebody who has a sleep disorder. And, and I think one of my questions also is we we talk about sleep, but there's a whole bunch of different things, obviously, that contribute to it. But I think one of the things that is often focused on in research is the amount of sleep somebody gets. Um, can you talk a little bit also about the difference between the amount of sleep versus quality of sleep and whether we know, um, you know the difference in, in effect of those kind of things? Sure. Well, you know, certainly I think the, the best way to assess is to, to ask. Uh, everybody has their individual sleep story. Um, I sometimes describe sleep as a, as a four-movement symphony. So if every organ system in the body is a different instrument section in a symphony orchestra, they all have to play in a coordinated manner to transition from one stage of that symphony into the next, which is like transitioning from one stage of sleep into the next. And, you know, oftentimes there is a, there, there oftentimes are uh, ways that we can get at which is the predominant problem. Is it, it is, is it a, is it a uh, uh, short sleep duration that is an issue or is it diminished quality that is an issue or is it a combination of both, which it, which it certainly can be. Um, you know, oftentimes when people ask me how much sleep should I be getting, what they're really asking me is, how little sleep can I get away with? And, and they're asking for kind of a set number uh, so that, so that you know, they, they, can, they can kind of justify uh, really not making a whole lot of lifestyle changes or, or, or uh, modifications to their sleep habits uh, and, and really persist in, in certain behaviors that aren't, con aren't conducive to good quality restorative sleep. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate for focusing on sleep hygiene and also coming, coming up with an, with a, with a nice bedtime routine. Um, uh, and, and that can be, that can be also very individualized. And this is where kind of, you know, motivational interviewing come into play. Um, you know, uh, use of bright screen electronic devices, uh, is so, is so rampant. You know, these, these bright screen electronic devices are, are kind of scientifically formulated to stimulate the arousal center of the brain. Not only the, the, the number of lumens or, or light energy that they emit, but also the content is designed to be stimulating. So, you know, it's, it's important to keep those things in mind that, you know, the recent, recent research shows that uh, artificial light at night can also contribute to weight gain um, in, in, in women and I think in men as well, although the, 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 the study was actually focused on women. Um, so, so these are the kinds of things to keep in mind when coming up with a good bedtime routine. And, and I think one of the, one of the two main questions that I ask my clients who are coming in, uh, for a sleep evaluation is number one, on most mornings, do you wake up feeling refreshed? And number two, do you feel like you have enough energy to get done what you need to get done during the day? And that's kind of what starts us off on the conversation. That's really interesting, Ashwin, because it's really teasing out what is it for that person and how do you help them, you know, set up to be able to get some sleep. You, you mentioned something really interesting, which was this con the, the impact of light. And I know there's a lot of work on the, the relationship between the circadian rhythm and circadian rhythm disruptors. And um, we often talk about, you know, prescribing melatonin to help people get off to sleep as a way of maybe perhaps influencing um, 
the the circadian rhythm in some way. And I'd be really interested in both of you and your points of view as to how the circadian rhythm and disruption of the circadian rhythm influences sleep disturbances and how that can influence the way we manage it. I can Sheila? I can talk first, sure. So I think um, I, I get asked about melatonin all the time, and um, really, one of the challenges is is that oftentimes, once the sleep problem has been around for a while, there is a certain level of anxiety around it. And no matter how much melatonin you take, it's not going to get rid of that sleep related anxiety. So melatonin is not potent enough to be a hypnotic or a sedative, you know, in that way. So, you know, you can have, you know, perfectly fine melatonin and still not be able to sleep. So um, there, there has been uh, research conducted not in the area of cancer on the effect of melatonin in individuals with insomnia. And really, it demonstrates that it is no better than placebo. Um, and that's specifically for the treatment of insomnia. Um, so, you know, melatonin administration as a, a, a method of reinforcing proper circadian rhythms or in the treatment of breast cancer, you know, that's that's a little bit different. But at least when we're talking about people who have difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, um, melatonin isn't that helpful. It is indicated in the treatment of um, shift work disorder jet lag and people who have circadian rhythm sleep disorders. So somebody who might be a night owl um, and the the tendency to have that eveningness chronotype has been associated with um, poor mental um, well-being and some other physical health problems. So those people can use melatonin to kind of shift themselves a little bit back. Um, but you know, melatonin for the treatment of problems falling asleep or staying asleep doesn't have a good evidence base. I agree. I, I think of melatonin as kind of a dose of darkness. Um, and, and, and I also, you know, uh, gravitate more towards behavioral anchors of our circadian rhythm. So, you, you, Judith, you mentioned disruptors and certainly, you know, for example, exposure to artificial bright screen, uh, bright screen electronic devices at night can be one of those disruptors of a circadian rhythm if, if used habitually. Uh, but I also like to focus on the anchors. What types of circadian anchors can we can we establish in our in our in our routines? Um, one of those anchors is actually exposure to morning morning light, natural morning light. And if you couple that with exercise, uh, I think it's a really nice uh, behavioral anchor for our circadian rhythm. Uh, and 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 the other thing is to have a nice uh, kind of uh, kind of quieting down routine in the evening time, which is void of bright screen electronic devices and, and ideally, uh, you know, in a quiet and dark space. This can be uh, mindfulness practice. It can be aromatherapy. It can be mindfulness with aromatherapy. Uh, it can be, you know, a relaxing cup of uh, non-caffeinated tea. Uh, these are the kinds of things that, that can really help us anchor our circadian rhythm, both in the morning time when we're waking up and in the evening time when we're getting to sleep. I think it's also important <clears throat> to mention, you mentioned night shift work, the, the importance of sleep disturbances, that night shift work has been a, associated with an increased risk of breast cancer. There are clock genes uh, that basically, you know, can either turn on and off based on whether you sleep enough. And obviously we all know that there's immune changes with uh, sleep disturbances, obesity you mentioned with hormonal changes. There's a lot of things that go into that. You mentioned nighttime routine. <clears throat> I'm just going to throw this out there because 
it's something I don't talk about that much, but I've heard is, is there a relationship between sexual activity and sleep? Because we don't talk about it, but for many patients who go through this cancer journey, that's actually totally disrupted. How much does that affect sleep uh, routine? Well, I would say that, you know, uh, ultimately good sleep hygiene means that you're using the bedroom for sleep and intimacy alone. Um, if you're referring to, you know, the, the sort of endorphins and their impact on sleep quality, it used to be kind of a widely held notion that exercise, for example, too close to bedtime might actually disrupt sleep quality, where actually that's found to be, that has found to be kind of debunked um, and, 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 and not actually the case. So, you know, um, certainly intimacy can be part of a very healthy bedtime routine. And, and, you know, it's important for us to ask about it. You know, I mean, I, I, I think that, I think that, that part of the, part of the issue is that we oftentimes we see people, uh, who are struggling with daytime fatigue, who are feeling depressed, who have a lot of anxiety and worry, which are, which are precipitators for insomnia. And, and, and we see this sort of constellation of symptoms, and we kind of gloss over the sleep part. Um, so I think one of the most important things to do is to, is, to, is to really acknowledge that sleep is oftentimes a mediator for many of these, for whether it's, whether it's cancer-related cognitive impairment, uh, daytime fatigue, uh, mood, mood changes, um, heightened degrees of inflammation that are contributing to pain, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, sexual dysfunction, all of these things can have can have correlates with sleep, and so I think I think the first thing to do is just ask it, ask about it, and and ask about sexual function and intimacy with with part with uh, one's partner, and and I think that's a really good starting point. You know, when when you'll you'll be you'll be amazed at how much you discover when you start to ask about what is your bedtime routine, what is your morning routine. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's up there with, you know, are you exercising and what are you eating and drinking on a regular basis? So, you know, certainly sleep is a central pillar of an integrative oncology practice. And I think one of the best things we can do is just get into the habit of asking about it. It's really interesting, isn't it? When we talk about integrative oncology, we ask a lot in our interviews. We, we tease things out. We want to know, are you having hot flushes? Are you sleeping well? What are you eating? What are you... Um, what is the quality of your sleep, what your cognitive function is like. And we try and develop this uh, approach that will address those symptom clusters. But the cause and effect, teasing that cause and effect out, I find uh, really fascinating. And it, I think it influences how we uh, develop an intervention for somebody. You mentioned, um, mentioned that a little bit with the cancer-related cognitive impairment and sleep disturbances. So if somebody doesn't sleep well and they're having hot flushes, will their cognitive impairment get worse? If we fix their sleep, are we improving their cognitive impairment? Maybe, but maybe not. And uh, if we fix their cog, if they if we do exercises to improve their cognitive function, does their sleep improve? Um, how in practice would you uh, tease that out to try and develop a uh, a meaningful intervention for your patients? That's a really good um, question, Judith. I think some of the research right now that has been prospective actually identifies fatigue as one of the first symptoms to appear. 
And because fatigue is also has components of physical fatigue, but also mental fatigue, emotional fatigue, um, you know, it has role, like it, it, it's more than just feeling tired, right? Um, but based on those feelings, then people can start to get um, more depressed um, and they can start to uh, feel mentally foggy. Um, they can start to take naps during the day. They can start to feel, you know, less, um, they might be feeling tired because they're fatigued but they may not be feeling sleepy. So they start engaging in other things to try and make themselves sleepy. So um, like the relationship between fatigue and sleep is very interesting, um, but it does seem right now that fatigue fatigue seems to be first. Um, And then sleep problems can follow, but then once they're there, they reinforce the fatigue. Um, I see sleep problems as a bit of like a gateway symptom. Because once you um, can dig in there on the sleep, um, you can improve that. And we know from the literature that you improve sleep, a whole host of other things get better, and you don't even have to touch them. So we know that fatigue gets better when you improve sleep. We know that cognitive function does. We know that depression and quality of life and pain and everything else. It's also really good once you improve sleep to see, okay, what's remaining? Um, and then you can maybe do some more targeted intervention on the things that are still there after you know, okay, well, we we have you sleeping enough quantity. We have you sleeping at the right time. You're satisfied with the sleep that you're getting. Now, how else can we improve your life? Agreed. And, and you know, um, one of the, one of the studies that I enjoy referencing most is the the yokas the yokas study the work of dr karen mustian and you know she in her research she found that indeed you know the practice of yoga can improve cancer related cognitive impairment and and improve cognition and actually the mediator was found to be better sleep quality um, so so sleep is 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 oftentimes when we when we befriend sleep we're, we're better able to decatastrophize uh, the, the nighttime awakenings that we may have. Uh, we, may, we may quell some of the anxiety about sleep itself. Uh, so that, that's the wonderful paradox about sleep is that oftentimes sleep disturbances, uh, as Sheila mentioned earlier, you know, they, 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 can, they, can, they have precipitating factors and then perpetuating factors. And anxiety about sleep itself can be a perpetuating factor for things like insomnia, for example. And I'm really intrigued by some of the studies looking at cancer-related cognitive uh, impairment and uh, functional MRI and then sleep disturbances and functional MRI. And it's not necessarily the same part of the brain that is, uh, that is lighting up, if, if that's a way of um, simplifying the uh, results. Do you want to just comment a little bit about um, that, how we tease that out and understand um, what's going on? So, you know, is it the, uh, I guess, the uh, in sleep disturbances, there's work looking at the hippocampal centres and um, the, the changes there and in cognitive impairment it is uh, other centres of the brain that are potentially impaired. And so we're saying, well, if you get better sleep, does it improve your cognitive function? Um, and is there a relationship? So... I'm intrigued, but I don't know any. I don't know the answers, so I'm just throwing it out there. I, yeah, I, I think I, 
think we're, we're also collectively still unraveling so much of the the science in sleep uh you know one one of the one of the studies that that uh i was fascinated by most recently was you know what happens in slow wave sleep uh during stage three sleep uh or you know these these slow rolling delta waves actually coincide with with almost a rinsing that happens, um, so they they found that you know especially in in uh, in in patients with Alzheimer's dementia, as kind of a as kind of a, a really pronounced uh, cognitive impairment uh, that 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 we see unfortunately all too often, uh, that that rinsing of the brain that occurs during uh, during stage three sleep actually is is kind of washing away some of those proteins that can form beta amyloid plaques and such that that are that are precursors and even harbingers of of uh, of worsening cognition uh, so so what's what's fascinating to me is is yes there's so many different areas of the brain involved to both maintain wakefulness as well as uh, contribute to healthy sleep architecture but it's also the timing uh, of 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 these of these of these mechanisms uh, that that we're that we're understanding better uh, with regard to improving cognition. And Sheila, I was curious about <clears throat> what you were talking about earlier with symptom clusters. Um, you know, that's something that we're learning more about that many of these things, whether it's fatigue and depression, for example, or pain and insomnia or sleep disturbances. Um, how do you tease that out? You know, you know, you see somebody who has pain and tells you in clinic, you know, I'm in pain and that's why I'm not sleeping. And you focus on the pain. How often is it where it is a symptom cluster? And and can you tell us a little bit more about maybe what's the mechanism of some of those symptom clusters and how you how you kind of viewed that patient in that light? So I guess I would say that um, it's very rare that you get somebody coming in and just presenting with one thing. So you're almost normally dealing with symptom clusters. So the way you might approach that um, might be based on um, the patient's preference, what's causing them the most distress at the time. Um, you might also go with, you know, what might be easiest to change and what might have the biggest influence on other things. Um, you might even ask the question like, if I took your pain away, do you think that would take all of these other symptoms away. And if the person says yes, right, then, you know, okay, let's focus on that. But if the person says no, then, you know, that may not be your target. It's almost like you're looking for somewhat of a linchpin or, you know, if I knock this down, what kind of collateral impact might it have on other ones? And I feel like that's a very efficient way um, to proceed with um, uh, personalized treatment. But some of some of these things can be interrelated, basically, like your sleep dysfunction can cause fatigue, for example, and uh, and depression. And similarly, pain, we know the causative, but is there, you know, in terms of mechanism, are there is there an overlap? Oh, certainly. And I think um, Ashwin talked about this as well. Like we know that there's inflammatory processes that are happening that are that are being um, influenced um, by uh, like are, that are influencing the presentation of all of these symptoms. Um, and so I think that you know, that's why you know you do have to look at it in more of a system um, because they are interrelated. So if you have one that you can target, um, then you're likely to have benefits on the others. Agreed. 
Agreed, Sheila. And, and you know, uh, so for example, according to the National Sleep Foundation, 66% or two-thirds of people who are experiencing chronic pain also have uh, sleep disturbances. Um, and, and, you know, uh, there have been some pilot studies, quite small sample sizes, that have been looking at substance P as, a, as one of the mediators so, so in one study that was actually looking at people with chronic pain syndromes, uh, like fibromyalgia, for example, uh, looking at how massage helps uh, improve both the pain and this, this cluster of, of, of uh, uh, poor sleep quality and, and sleep being disturbed by pain. Um, and they found that substance P was a, a decrease in substance P was one of the associations that may have contributed to both less pain and less sleep disruption, um, just as an example. And I think this is a really, such a really, uh, it's a really important topic, this, this topic of clusters. Um, you know, I oftentimes, when any, any, symptom, any symptom that I'm, that I'm sort of uh, told about, um, I ask my client, well, are your hot flashes impacting your sleep quality? Or is your pain impacting, is your pain waking you up from sleep? Um, and, 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 you know, another, another really important or, or common one that I see is, is depression, um, and mood changes and, and, and sleep loss. Uh, so it's really important, I think, for a clinician to kind of drill down, you know, what is, what is the, what is sort of the most, the, the biggest contributor here? Is it that somebody is depressed and therefore can't sleep or is somebody really not sleeping well and frustrated uh, which is which is kind of creating that learned helplessness to to contribute to uh, the mood the the mood changes and the depression, and the reason that's important is because you know so often you know uh, medications that we commonly use to treat depression uh, SSRIs most notoriously are actually REM suppressing medications. So you know that's really it's really important to kind of drill down to which is the biggest contributor. And I really like Sheila's uh, idea of 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 really asking the patient to reflect, uh, you know, if, if, if we were to take your pain away, if we were to take your depression away, your hot flashes away, do you feel like you could get good sleep quality uh, instead, of, instead of sort of having sleep be this sort of universal casualty of every symptom that comes up? I think the beauty of integrative oncology and the work that we're doing um, is that we address symptom clusters. And I think the, you know, my background... Um, Part of my background was studying uh, Chinese medicine diagnosis and I think uh, using and working in a multidisciplinary team with acupuncturists, when you see these symptom clusters, um, they're addressed so beautifully by acupuncture, by massage, by yoga and qigong and exercise and we're actually treating, we're, we're diagnosing differently. We're seeing that relationship between sleep disturbances, hot flushes, uh, diet, exercise, um, love of hot or cold foods, bowel, bowel habits, and um, and trying to put that into a, a, a diagnosis that's outside of the Western framework and then treating according to that diagnosis. So I think that um, uh, sleep disturbances is something, and I, I'm very interested in um, the work with uh, Jun Mao and, and others in sleep disturbances and acupuncture and um, comparing that to CBT. And is are we actually contributing far more than, um, than other 
um, practices in, in uh, as far as sleep is concerned? Are we addressing, are we looking at it completely differently? And when we're talking about management, actually looking at um, at clusters. So I thought since you're on this paper, um, Sheila, you wouldn't mind maybe make commenting on how you went about why you chose to look at these um the factors that shape preference for acupuncture or cognitive behaviour therapy and why you thought acupuncture was so uh, important to you? Oh, certainly. So um, there's there's one paper before this one, actually, which was our, our primary outcomes paper. It came out in, um, it was 2017, and it was published in the Journal of National Cancer Institute. And uh, we compared um, acupuncture to cognitive behavior therapy in 160 um, cancer patients specifically with insomnia. So it was the largest trial um, to compare, largest insomnia trial in cancer, um, and also the first to compare two active interventions. And the reason that we wanted to look at acupuncture is because there's a great deal of research that has um, supported the model of hyperarousal in insomnia. And Ashwin talked about it as, you know, um, you can have this hyperarousal level, which might predispose you to have insomnia, um, but it can also kind of perpetuate it. So kind of make it stick around or maintain it. And so there is um, the uh, suggestion that acupuncture, that's one of the, the methods or one of the mechanisms on which acupuncture might work is it might kind of balance out or, or you know, kind of target these arousal pathways. And um, cognitive behavior therapy comes at it from a different way. Um, it targets the the behaviors that are maintaining this arousal and the thoughts that are maintaining this arousal. So, um, you know, fortunately, um, I had quite a bit of experience in cognitive behavior therapy, and and uh, Jun Mao had quite a bit of experience in acupuncture. So it was a nice blending of our of our worlds. And um, overall, what we found was that um, cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia, it, it did come out as the, the treatment with greater overall effect. Um, however, our primary outcome was the insomnia severity index, and that has been established to have a um, minimally clinically important difference value of about eight. And the acupuncture group um, exceeded that minimally clinically important difference value. It didn't quite get to the CBTI level, but it made a minimally clinically important difference. And I was um, quite impressed um, to see that. I wasn't sure. We didn't know. Um, you know, I had nothing really to expect. And I was like, well, I, I was I was really um, impressed by that. And we also found that it was different by group. So people with pain actually had uh, a stronger response to acupuncture um, than the people um, with uh, without pain. Um, and then we did some follow-up qualitative interviews and um, uh, what we found is that uh, the people who preferred acupuncture um, did, you know, a lot of people were curious. They just wanted to be like, well, I don't know. Will it work? You know, I want to give it a try. I'm kind of curious about it. Other people really liked the approach that it took, um, you know, kind of more of a whole systems, you know, uh, uh, they liked the fact that, you know, it's been around for a long time. Um, and uh, other people, you know, felt that same way about cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia, that they didn't want, um, uh, that they felt that that, really resonated with them more. 
fascinating, isn't it? The, because it's something that we really don't understand and yet acupuncture seems to work when you look at within those symptom clusters for select populations. I think mindfulness is also something that uh, works for uh, symptom clusters as does yoga and I'm really quite intrigued by um, where these fit in. So that's, yeah, actually, so as, as part of my doctoral research with uh, Dr. Linda Carlson at the University of Calgary, we did a comparative trial of um, cognitive behavior therapy versus the mindfulness-based stress reduction. And, and actually, we found a, um, that was a non-inferiority trial. And what we found is when we looked immediately after treatment at eight weeks, cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia um, was better than the mindfulness-based stress reduction program. But then when we followed individuals up to three months, the the people who were practicing mindfulness caught up to the people who had initially um, benefited from the cognitive behavior therapy. So, you know, it's it's like for the people who who want to learn a skill that they're able to practice and, you know, that they're able to do it um, versus other people, um, uh, you know, may prefer a different treatment style. So this is so meaningful uh, research and 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 it's 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 helpful for you know, for clinicians, because, you know, I, I, I find that I, I noticed that our patients are expending a tremendous amount of time, energy, resources, you know, pursuing these types of recommendations in earnest and really being diligent about what we're recommending. Um, and, and, and your research actually helps prioritize, you know, uh, what, what, what should be kind of our first line and second line, even if we're going to be using a lot of these multimodal, uh, you know, interventions uh, together really to 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 unravel this this cluster of symptoms. So so thank right. you for but that. But it's also patient centered, <clears throat> which is where we need to go in this because you know not everybody's the same. They're culturally biased in different ways and have different preferences. And then on top of it, they have different symptom clusters. And you really want to target, you know, when we have such complex things going on, including you know, whether somebody's on steroids and all the different factors that go into what is causing their symptoms, to have it patient-centered and focused on what's the right thing for that specific patient, this is going to be targeted to them. I thought that was fantastic as well. I want to take a step back, though, and um, maybe, Ashwin, you can you can walk us through this. Just take us through, kind of, as a clinician, you know, how you assess somebody with sleep uh disturbances in, in the journey of cancer. And I'll, I'm going to show this diagram as we as we do it. But um, yeah, take us through, you know, how do we start thinking about it and, um, and, and walk us through kind of to the point where we can actually start maybe thinking of an integrative approach? Sure. Well, I always begin by asking, you know, my two favorite screening questions, which are on most mornings, are you waking up feeling refreshed? And, and secondly, do you feel like you have enough energy to get done what you need to get done during the day? Um, you know, you can also, you can also ask quite broad, broad questions such as, you know, are you overall satisfied with your sleep quality? Um, and, and, you know, just from asking those preliminary questions, you can oftentimes, um, gain an appreciation for, uh, what is the what is the more predominant contributor to the sleep concern? Is it a quality concern, in other words, insufficient sleep quality, or is it insufficient sleep duration that is that is that is you know probably the bigger determinant? Um, so you know, asking really broad 
uh, questions about sleep. I find that, you know, people have, a, I, I went into sleep because I'm fascinated by all the different physiologic processes that go on, uh, you know, so without any active input from us, this is, you know, we're, we're sort of on autopilot and, and so many wonderful things are, are happening in our bodies. Uh, you know, it's just always enthralled by that. Um, and, and I find that, you know, other people, uh, oftentimes people, people are, you know, this is, this is a favorite subject of water cooler talk too. You know, I mean, people like to talk about, oh, I didn't sleep so good last night or, you know, um, so. I have a question though. I mean, cause it's so prevalent right? It's so prevalent. And I think sleep hygiene is a major issue for many people. And I just wonder, you know, I, I used to meditate outside <clears throat> in the morning early. And I don't know how many people do that right now, but I, I, I used to. And it was fascinating to me that every single animal has an absolute precise timing. They wake up like the birds would start chirping at the exact same time every day. And we don't do that. I mean, like, you know, if I'm in a good rhythm, yes, I will wake up at a certain time and my clock is right. How is it that people get this messed up? I mean, is it just sleep hygiene or what you said about light? I mean, it seems to be a human problem is my point. I would, I would, I guess I would argue, I would um, suggest that if we stopped getting in the way of our sleep, if we stop trying to force our rhythm to meet the demands of our employer or what, um, you know, if we if we followed our natural sort of rhythms, um, we would fall into something similar to what you described. And I guess people who go camping, um, you know, might actually relate to this, right? Where you don't have an alarm waking you up, but you're in a tent and you hear the birds and you see the light and, you know, you get better sleep when you're camping and you kind of settle into this routine. It takes a while for your body to get out of that disruptive, maybe, you know, fast paced routine that you're in. Um, but uh, I, I think like, we would actually fall into a more normal pattern, understanding that um, there are circadian variances, right? So there's people who are going to be more naturally, more early bird, then there's going to be the night owls, and then most of us are going to fall kind of somewhere in between there. There are also, there are also uh, variations with regard to how much sleep we need. There are physiologically longer and shorter sleepers. So, you know, oftentimes it's our misconceptions about sleep that, that fuel these anxieties uh, themselves. So, you know, uh, I often find that people who are physiologically shorter sleepers, they're trying to, they're really striving so hard to become, uh, you know, what they've heard should be what is normal. Uh, you know, I should be sleeping seven and a half to eight hours. Um, but actually, a lot of people sometimes they're they're okay with six and a half, six six and a half hours of sleep, and they're just sh short short sleep duration sleepers physiologically, and and to allow for that is is really important. You know, I think that that one of the one of the things that we habitually do is set the expectations for ourselves so high, and 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 that is really oftentimes what can contribute to fueling these misconceptions about sleep. So that's what we that's what we oftentimes address from a sort of cognitive reframing standpoint is just is just let's 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 befriend sleep let's make sure that you know we are go ahead go ahead Sheila no I I wanted to double down on what you're saying because it doesn't help that um, the media and and a lot of medical professionals are going to elevate 
um, the patient's concerns about sleep, um, especially sleep quantity. Um, And patients come to me in my practice with significant fears that if they don't get enough sleep or the proper quality sleep, that is going to contribute to their cancer coming back or their cancer getting worse. And so as soon as sleeping becomes a life or death activity, you've almost guaranteed you're not going to get it, right? <laughs> so um, like the anxiety that the the world, um, now I, I'm happy that people are, are paying more attention to sleep, but it has come at this cost where now it becomes a goal for people to strive to this like, you know, I'm going to be the best sleeper ever <laughs> or my sleep becomes um, what's going to keep me alive. And, and that kind of anxiety just certainly doesn't help. And, and oh, our, yes, our, go ahead, yeah. go ahead, Judith. No, and that's really interesting because there are some papers being written and some that you've quoted, Sheila, on uh, the impact of sleep on the immune function, on um, good sleep and the relationship between developing infection. Um, So how do we know if somebody's sleep is good enough, even if it's only five hours? So that is really tricky, and you're right. there, there is some evidence that um, certain types of sleep disruptions um, yeah. might be associated with adverse um, health outcomes. Um, so like sleep apnea, for example, um, you know, that one, there's some clear directional effects that, you know, that's associated with, with worse sleep outcomes. Insomnia isn't always associated with short sleep duration. It's just that people are spending a lot of time in bed trying to get that sleep. So they might be spending 12 hours in bed, but they're still getting actually seven hours of sleep. So insomnia itself or problems falling asleep or staying asleep may not be actually associated with worse health outcomes. Um, so that's why I think some of the research is conflicting. Um, and But there is better research now coming out um, demonstrating that, you know, the importance of sleep for immune functioning and recovery. Um, I try and work with people to reduce their anxiety and arousal around this, um, specifically focusing on, all right, um, yes, there is a role for sleep and immunity and health. However, it is not the only thing that contributes to health. And there's things that you have more control over that you can target versus trying to get more sleep. Because again, it's almost like um, the more you... Pro, the the more you chase it, the the more elusive it becomes. So let's focus on making your circadian rhythm really strong. Let's focus on making sure that your diet is good. Let's make sure that your physical activity is good. Let's sure make sure that your stress levels are good. Um, and then you know, let's like sleep can follow after that. And also like the short term, um, we're going to fix your sleep in the short term for better health in the long term. So you might have to tolerate some poor sleep while you're making this other these other behavioral changes but focusing on that can make sure that your sleep is better in the long term and how do you know when you're getting enough sleep that's a, that's a tricky one uh, like i like ashwin's question about like can you can you get through the day um and and sometimes other other factors like fatigue can get in the way of that um and cancer related fatigue being so long lasting um i think it is a it's a delicate balance between um quantity and quality you know definitely quantity is not the goal um but it 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 is you know 
how much how much sleep do you need to be able to function effectively um, during the day? And I also like to take people back to tell me when you were functioning well. How much sleep were you getting then? right before you had these troubles because sleep need as an adult really doesn't change all that much um oh. so if you were a short sleeper you know back then and it only you know you only needed 6 hours you're probably not going to need much more than that now how do you but guys some people don't realize how do you guys feel about naps they can be helpful um as long as they don't impact your ability to fall asleep at night <laughs> i agree my 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 grandma used to say after lunch rest a while and after dinner, walk a mile. And she's and she's in relatively good health for her age. So, you know, I, I, I think that as long as there is not a sleep concern ongoing, uh, naps are perfectly okay. In fact, there's more and more evidence emerging for what is known as a biphasic sort of sleep routine. That this, you know, if you can imagine when we were living in hunter-gatherer communities, the matriarchs and the patriarchs of the tribe would have to wake up in the middle of the night make sure the, the the fire was stoked and go down to the creek and get water. Uh, you know, these were, these were you know, the, we, we sort of developed an evolutionary alarm clock that, wake, that, that wakes us up in the evening and, it, you know, during any uh, sleep uh, uh, period. Conversely, during the daytime, it's okay to have a little bit of a pause. So, you know, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine used to have as its, uh, as its uh, emblem the Chinese yin and yang, and nobody really broke it down for me, but I always interpreted that as, you know, during every period of daytime wakefulness, it's okay to have a little rest, a bit of a siesta. And conversely, during every period of nighttime sleep, it's okay to have a, few, a little bit of a, a wakefulness. I, I mean, I've been told that's like 30 minutes, right? That you're not supposed to nap more than that, but is that, is that true? There's some reasons for that. And I think like, you know, yeah, Ashwin's talking um, about like m- maybe more prolonged wake periods uh, at night and more prolonged sleep periods during the day. But you know the reason for the the suggestion that naps be shorter than thirty minutes, especially during the day, is that you know you get into your uh, deeper sleep um, when you're passing that thirty minute threshold, and when you're in that sleep. Um, Ashwin described it as like slow wave delta sleep, right? Your brain is really not, you know, you know, quick functioning very well. So if you were to be woken up from that deep sleep, you would feel groggy, you would feel confused, you wouldn't actually feel very refreshed. So it's almost like you have to have a sleep of 30 minutes or less or 90 minutes or more. And if you sleep more than 90 minutes, it's more likely that you're going to have difficulty falling asleep at night. So it's like... Uh, there is a nice balance with napping and and the time because you want to have your nap earlier in the day so you have enough time to build up sleep pressure um, with a neuromodulator called adenosine. You need to be able to build up that sleep pressure um, so you're able to fall asleep at night and the naps would, you know, take off some of that sleep pressure. So I've heard, this is really interesting, you know, because you started off saying, well, if we fix your sleep, maybe the other symptoms will get a bit better. Um, If we don't focus on sleep and we focus on reducing your stress, improving your appetite, improving your exercise, improving um, other other parts of your uh, existence so that you uh, are, are feeling better and you get enough sleep that maintains wellness and well-being. 
is that that is potentially our aim as uh, treating people and caring for people during their cancer experience and into survivorship, into that post-cancer space. Um, is that the message that um, is generally what you feel we are we are giving out? Is that the is that the approach that have I interpreted that correctly or not quite? Not quite. I'm hearing from Sheila. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know, because I think that that was traditionally held, right? Like, sleep was often seen as secondary to something else. Mm. And, and so what we know from, like, the research in depression is that even if you treated the depression, like, you've got, like, these, these um, sleep concerns, either, like, um, insomnia or hypersomnia, if you treat the depression, it doesn't actually always resolve the sleep concerns, and, you know, you can have people who lead a very healthy lifestyle too, and then they still have sleep concerns. So I think, you know, um, there may be instances where um, it's an easy fix and the sleep will resolve once something else is fixed. But in a lot of cases, it's not going to. You almost need like a, 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 a combined approach, like with some really sleep focused um, in addition to something else because in in many cases the the problems with sleep are reinforced by um anxieties and concerns that people have behaviors that they're doing um, that may not be targeted or may not be changed by the other interventions so i would say that you have to do a little bit of both i don't know ashwin do you agree i would i would agree i would agree you know i i think that what ends up happening is that we have this tendency to strive. Anyone who's living beyond a cancer diagnosis is striving to get better. They're really put, putting forth their best effort uh, to get to get to feel better. And, and uh, unfortunately, the paradox is that if we strive to fall asleep better, then oftentimes that fuels that that's one of the perpetuating factors that can kind of fuel sleeplessness because we're striving so hard towards what our what we have in our mind set as a perfect night of sleep. So, so I think that what Sheila was saying is that, you know, redirecting that striving, that energy towards exercise, nutrition, you know, those, those things that actually respond to our willful effort and then, and then allowing the letting go of sleep, the surrender of sleep to really take its natural course. I think that's what, what Sheila was, was, was really, was really pointing at earlier. And I, I agree. That's the same exact uh, philosophy that that I use when I'm when I'm counseling patients about getting better night's rest. You guys mentioned some some low hanging fruit there. Uh, I think most of us we see a patient we if they're not sleeping okay are you exercising enough how's your circadian rhythm let's set that right um, you know what kind of medications are you on what other symptom clusters do you have once we get past that stage and you know that's where they really want the integrative doctor to kind of recommend what else can I do. What are some of the things that come to mind? Um, I think Judith and and feel free to you know to to chime in on this in terms of what we do because now we're getting into clinical stuff you know and all of us probably do some similar things and some different things but you know you mentioned mindfulness you mentioned meditation um, yoga you know you, all sorts of things like that um, I'm curious what what everybody recommends um, including botanicals. Sure. So, um, you know, I, I oftentimes like to start with a sleep log. You know, there, there are wonderful resources out there uh, that are available 
in fact, I believe the National Sleep Foundation also has a, a, a widely available uh, sleep log. It might be even available online uh, in PDF form. Um, but the nice thing about that is that, you know, oftentimes there's a sleep state misperception. You know, people are actually sleeping better than they think, or they're just not sleeping at, you know, to the, to the, to the expectations that they have set for themselves. And, and I, th- I think a sleep log is a really good initial step to, to, cat- to really just, you know, take an inventory. How much caffeine are you drinking during the day? Are you exercising? Um, you know, what time, what time are you sort of shutting down and getting ready for bed? What time do you sleep? Um, how many times do you wake up at night? When do you wake up? How do you feel? Um, so I think keeping a sleep log is a really great initial initial step to befriending this whole this whole um, uh, mystery of sleep, uh, and that's that's what I use initially, and then and then it just it, it kind of evolves from there. I do try and take you know personal preferences and 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 experience with a particular modality in 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 and try and keep that in mind. If somebody has been practicing yoga or has made forays into a mindfulness practice or you know enjoyed acupuncture for some other concern earlier, um, you know sometimes sometimes I use uh, just a very organic way of 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 identifying which of those modalities. Uh, would be most beneficial, and and when it comes to when it comes to botanicals, um, you know, I I I I always try and you know counsel that a lot of a lot of the botanicals that have historically been used for sleep may have some estrogenic properties, and that you sh- you do need to be careful with that. Um, you know, for example, lavender. Um, you know, there uh, we know that lavender has estrogenic properties, but also has uh, you know very nice somnolent effect in people. Uh, so you know, I do I do um, make it a point to uh, to 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 really uh, to make sure that 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 any botanical that I use is not going to is not going to actually be a detriment um, first and foremost. So do no harm. And then I, I I'm a I'm an advocate for sort of judicious and and short term transient use of of botanicals in order to in order to improve sleep quality. And the list the list is pretty pretty you know pretty long. Um, you know, everything from lemongrass, lemon balm, uh, I mentioned lavender, um, you know, chamomile, uh, you know, people use valerian, although sometimes it, it, it can cause a bit of a, a hangover effect in, in the, in, you know, the morning after. Uh, so be watchful for that. Um, there, there's uh, hops. Hops are also very, very good. Um, so there, there's so many things out there that you can, that you can potentially use. And, you know, oftentimes even magnesium. Uh, a, a good a good shot of magnesium in the evening time uh, really has 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 wonderful wonderful effects on on uh, a lot of my a lot of my patients who are living beyond cancer. Uh, Sheila, what do you think? What have you been using? Yeah, so the sleep diary uh, is absolutely essential. So um, I and I go through you know pretty comprehensive anywhere from like I usually send sixty to ninety minutes in the first session, really kind of digging into like their their present sleep concern, its development, um, their psychological health, their physical health, um, family um, history, um, and and trying to understand. Um, the possible contributions of other sleep disorders as well, um, because they they may have things like restless legs or or sleep apnea or um, even things like nightmares or you know something. So understanding all of that, and I also make sure to ask somebody about like what would their sleep goals be? You know, how do you want to improve your sleep? 
And um, I, I do a lot of um, imagery, um, a lot of uh, relaxation strategies. So whether they be um, meditation, whether they be yoga, um, whether they be guided imagery, I find that is as uh, you can get uh, really powerful, especially when you're asking somebody to uh, detail a pleasant memory um, or also kind of progressive muscle relaxation. Um, I'll often also recommend magnesium, um, especially for people who might have leg cramps or, you know, um, restless legs, things like that. Uh, and uh, I take I take a, a more behavioral approach that way. Um, and I think that you know you you meet the client each week and then you refine it. Um, I continue to use the sleep log with them to assess uh, the effect um, each week of the how things are going and then we tweak and tailor it. And um, I'll chime in a little bit and I guess I see, I'm, I'm quite obsessed with using um, patient-reported outcome measures and I use the long version of the ESAS, the Edmonton Symptom Assessment Score, that includes quality of sleep, distress, sadness, memory disturbance. And then I look at um, going through that and treating the, the whole person, including their sleep. So I, I love the idea of the sleep log. I think that's really important. I work with a nurse that does a lot of the sleep hygiene work. I think that um, it's really then looking at what evidence-based practice in, would suit that person that you're recommending um, interventions to. So every person that I see gets uh, referred for an exercise program. Uh, some people may really benefit from an oncology massage or a reflexology treatment uh, just uh, because of their the relationship between anxiety and sleep disturbance or um pain and sleep disturbance and really just trying to um, treat the, the most immediate in order to um, uh, meet their needs and get them to a, a decent place. And then it's looking at um, if there's a relationship with uh, chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy, fatigue, hot flushes and sleep disturbance, then I'm thinking acupuncture and, um, and yoga. And so it's really looking at how you tailor that program. And then the um, mindfulness program is a long-term, so it's all about patient empowerment. So uh, looking at um, how you empower people to have skills to then uh, move forward and uh, take that into their daily life and how and if a uh, learning a technique that works with them, whether it's a yoga technique, a yoga nidra technique, a mindfulness practice, if um, they feel they would benefit from a, speaking to a psychologist that works with, um, with behavioural therapy and or a combination of those approaches. So it's really um, starting with the symptom as part of a symptom cluster and, of course, you know, getting rid of all the all the, uh, the wrong drugs, checking the bloods. I love magnesium. I think it's uh, really helpful. Um, uh, magnesium baths as well, magnesium soaks for feet. And then because I'm also working in the medicinal cannabis space, I'm getting some very interesting patients coming my way. And I talk a lot about sleep and our study in brain cancer and cannabis showed an improvement in sleep was really, um, and then in quality of life was significant. And uh, showing that um, the significant, Im the improvement in sleep with um, using uh, medicinal cannabis that then improves function. 
and physical function as well as cognitive function is quite amazing. And so um, it's looking at where that fits in, which makes me think about the role of the endocannabinoid system in sleep disturbances. And so that's a new field and it's very interesting. But as a result, most people I prescribe cannabis for for their refractory pain will say, look, the main thing is my sleep is so much better. And so it's looking at what botanical would I choose? Um, you know, magnesium and cannabis are up there, but I can't prescribe cannabis first line. But it is looking at um, where does this fit into our offerings in, in the future. And so it's, it's, I think it's, it's fascinating. It's, a, it's really where we still have a lot of uh, experience that comes into play as, as clinicians um, because it's, you know, the studies are, are, are there and they give you a menu but you really have to apply that to that to that patient. And um, when it comes to things like botanicals, for example, I use ashwagandha sometimes. I mean, the, the list goes on. Um, and you end up, you know, more or less <clears throat> developing what, what, what you have seen work. You mentioned cannabis. You get a sense, okay, well, if I have this type of patient, this is my go-to. Um, and I'm not going to do everything in every patient. And that that ends up being really satisfying because sleep is one of the best things if, if as an integrative provider, we have probably more tools that we use. And it's really satisfying to fix one thing, which is such a pain for people if it's not working. Um, I'm curious. I just want to throw this out there. Does anybody recommend benzodiazepines? I'll, I'll admit once in a while I, I will use them. Um, for those people who are on steroids and their life is messed up, and uh, more as a medical oncologist, um, I will throw that out there sometimes, and I wouldn't admit it to people who ask me on the street. But, um, you know, I know that long term, it's a problem. I'm just curious, uh, you know, what other people, you know, think about that or, you know, would, would suggest. So, I mean, you know, whether it's, whether it's a botanical or a prescription medication like a benzodiazepine that I'm using, I think, I think, you know, part of the conversation has to be, look, this is a temporary measure. This is, you know, the, the issue, the, the, the real concern about benzodiazepine use is it's prolonged usage in order to address sleep concerns. That's what I think we can all agree uh, should be avoided, um, you know, but, but temporary, temporary steps like using benzodiazepines or, or any other or any other sleep aid for that matter. I mean, you know, these are all tool all tools within the toolkit that we should be using, uh, albeit judiciously. So it doesn't really matter to me uh, whether it's a botanical being used, medical cannabis, or a benzodiazepine or some other sleep medication. As long as as long as it's conveyed to our patients that this is a temporary measure this is this is a bridge towards a more longer a longer term solution and that longer term solution is going to require some skill building on your part whether it's developing a mindfulness practice or a yoga routine or you know using yoga breathing guided imagery creative visualization all of these things are kind of skill building and they, they there's a stepwise process towards building that skill and these these sleep aids that we're that we're talking about now are actually going to be a bridge towards that 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 those those skill building steps which are the more long term workable solutions I almost think that uh, like the sleeping medication should be used for people who don't have sleep problems yet in anticipation 
um, and not necessarily for those people who already have sleep problems. Um, because I find that they're most helpful, like say if somebody, you know, is on dexamethasone, isn't sleeping, but it's like for a predef- predefined period of time saying, okay, you know what, if you're having trouble sleeping, here, use this, you know, here's five pills, you know, you're done. Uh, and they're like, great, you know, they may not use them, they may use them, but they don't have anxiety or they're not like, it's almost preventing them from being concerned about not sleeping. In the individuals who already have trouble sleeping, then it becomes almost like a, um, like a lifesaver. Um, where it's like, if if I don't have this medication or if I don't have this, then I'm going to drown. I'm not going to sleep. And, you know, all of this catastrophizing starts to happen. Um, so in those individuals, if there is going to be any um, prescription of medication, it, uh, in my opinion, it needs to be combined again with somebody else who can help them learn other things and taper off the reliance on the sleeping medication while building their own, almost like, I call it sleep self-efficacy. So belief in your own ability to sleep again. And and people with insomnia in particularly, they lose that sleep self-efficacy. And so it is really um, that uh, used for different patients in different circumstances, but I think those are really um, good responses. I think the, um, and I use temazepam, you know, if I've got a person who has a very, only a few weeks to live, I'm less concerned with addiction compared to the person who um, is going to live a very long time and you really don't want them dependent. So I think that was um, a really fantastic answer, Ashwin and Sheila, to those that um, question of, of uh benzodiazepine use and I prescribe it really just as a, a stopgap if someone's really struggling they'll say look I'll just take one every now and then but I just sometimes just need to get to sleep to function for something really important the next day. Um, as, we're, as we're sort of starting to wrap up Sheila do you want to tell us a little bit about um, your work and your sleep lab because I think that's quite uh, interesting and exciting. So, yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Um, I think, you know, my purpose, uh, my clinical purpose, my research purpose is to really increase the evidence base of interventions to improve sleep, like across the cancer spectrum, um, from, you know, preventing sleep disturbances from happening to treating them once they've um, been established and and also using sleep, as I mentioned, almost as that gateway um, symptom to try and improve other symptoms. So right now I have a number of um, studies on the go, um, one of them looking at whether or not if by treating um, uh, insomnia using a cognitive behavioral perspective, whether or not that can improve um, perceived cognitive impairment, um, adding to the literature that, you know, improving sleep, and and, and it wouldn't necessarily have to be improving sleep with this one particular intervention, but if by improving sleep, can we have this cascading improvement in other symptoms? And I think that this is the research that needs to be done to, to prioritize sleep health in the context of cancer from the very beginning, from diagnosis, um, allowing individuals to say, all right, like, let's preserve that as part of your health. And and that can also help you um, stay resilient as um, other aspects um, of treatment are occurring. Sounds very exciting. And really important. Well, and one of the things too, I guess, is that like there needs to be more providers, um, more attention paid to addressing sleep within cancer centers. 
So, you know, um, hopefully this will raise the evidence and people will start paying attention to the need to address it. Here, here. I mean, there's a great shortage, right, of sleep uh, trained, uh, you know, specialists, right? Yeah, Ashwin can speak to that as well. Absolutely. I think relative to the need, yes, there is a shortage. And especially within cancer centers like Ashwin, as far as being a board medicine or uh, a board certified uh, in sleep medicine, I don't know how many other people are also board certified working in cancer centers. I would say not very many. True, that is true. Not very many. And it's that multidisciplinary approach that I think we have in integrative oncology, integrative medicine in cancer care, that really um, enables us to be a space where people can openly tease out and talk about their sleep disturbances and this multimodal approach to care. So I think um, it sounds like the work that you're doing will contribute significantly to um, the way we practice and um, manage sleep disturbances in the future. So thank you very much. Thank you. Well, you know, we could keep talking. I mean, <clears throat> you know, there's just, I, I, we could easily talk for a couple more hours um, I think that uh, it's interesting that we're on four different time zones and have four different circadian rhythms going on right now. Um, so I really appreciate the fact that we could come together and uh, and and be in the same same kind of place and and talk about the same thing at the same time. Um, really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Santosh. Enjoy it, Santosh. Thank and you, Judith. Judith. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And it's such an interesting topic. <laughs> and thank you, Judith, as well. I appreciate the fact that you could join us today. And uh, I look forward to sharing more podcasts with you. Oh, it's been a lot of fun. And I um, and it helps us learn. And it's a learning process. And it's great to be able to engage and engage with you and with others to explore the, the value of um various interventions and understanding what goes on for people who are living with cancer and how we can use our skills to improve their lives. So thank you for the invitation to join you as co-host. All right, guys, take care. Thank you. Be safe, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.